Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, this is J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Jim Whitehurst, whom I have known since we met back in the day as section mates at Harvard Business School. He is the former president of IBM, and prior to that was the chairman and CEO of Red Hat, which IBM acquired in 2019. Prior to taking over Red Hat, Jim was the chief operating officer of Delta Airlines. He began his career at Boston Consulting Group, where he rose to the level of partner before joining Delta in 2001. Jim is currently a senior advisor to IBM and a special advisor to the private equity firm Silver Lake. He is also on several boards of directors, including the board of United Airlines. He is also an advisory board member for Santander Bank. He's a regular speaker at corporate and industry events. He has a TED Talk to his credit, and he spent a year producing a management and leadership video series called An Open Conversation with Jim. He also wrote a book called The Open Organization, Igniting Passion and Purpose, which was published by Harvard Business Review in 2015. He served as a member and vice chairman of the North Carolina Economic Development Board. And in 2014, he was selected as a recipient of the North Carolina State Park Scholarships Program William C. Friday Award. Jim's a graduate of Rice University, where he earned a bachelor's degree in computer science and economics. During his undergraduate years, He spent time at the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg in Germany and at the London School of Economics. He earned his MBA from Harvard Business School. He and his wife live in New York City and have two college-age children. Jim, welcome. Great to have you today. I'm appreciative of your time. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here and it's great to reconnect with you. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since we've talked. So you have a career trajectory in the intro, you know, it talks about some careers taking off like rockets and others being more like the game of shoots and ladders. I think you're definitely more in the, in the rocket category than in the shoots and ladders category. You know, I usually start at the beginning, but maybe we could start in the middle. So you became CEO of Red Hat back in 2008. You were there for 11 years. You had come from Delta how did you make that transition from an airline job into, you know, leading a tech company that was really in its growth phase? Yeah, well, that it was a, an amazing opportunity that came my way. And if we have time, we talk about that. But I, um, a board member at, from Red Hat knew of me at Delta, and that's a long story, and said, you got to give this person a chance. And hmm. so first off, I've been screwing around with Linux for years, which is Red Hat's main product, just as an avocation. So when I first got a call, it was actually came from a recruiter. It was public. I was leaving Delta at the time. And he said, I'm not sure you've ever heard of this company. And they do this thing called Linux. And I, of course, said, well, of course I know this. I have used right. it at home. I know all about this. So, right. you know, I'm a little more techie than the average, you know, big company, you know, kind of exec. But most importantly, coming into that situation, I would tell people any situation, one of the reasons I took the role 
is I had a thesis of how to, of what I would do with it. So I didn't come and say, oh, great. Thank you for the job. Now let me go figure it out. Right. I spent time researching and kind of had a sense of what I thought the company was doing well and the areas where we can really do things differently and accelerate growth. Once you kind of have that thesis, then it's about, you know, and it's always this, you know, it's about building a great team. They can go execute that because there are more things that I'm bad at than I'm good at. But one thing I think I'm good at is being self-aware enough to know what I'm good and bad at. And yes. so then you hire, that's a beautiful thing when you have latitude to hire your own team is you can hire for your weaknesses and build complementary strengths that in, in total that can lead to you know, everyone on the team being flawed, but the team itself not having a lot of flaws. And so I think we built a really, really, really good team and, you know, executed into it. It was just a phenomenal, both honor and privilege, but also just experience to be able to be a part of that. Did you find that you had to change out a lot of the team when you got there? I luckily didn't. We had to make, I would call it tweaks. You know, that's um, one of the, I think the big decisions that people have to make. And there are different people with different styles around that. So I know there's some people who come in and say, I'm going to change out my team because I want the whole team to either be loyal to me, or I want the whole team to be who I've chosen and I can craft it exactly right. I think I, I guess, cut my teeth at senior leadership at Delta when I was kind of battlefield promoted to COO. And look, we were hurling towards bankruptcy. So I wasn't in spending time to go recruit people. And honestly, nobody in their right mind would have come to an airline in that situation. So you had to take the existing team and work to kind of craft, you know, use everyone's strengths to craft an excellent team. And we did fill in with a couple people here and there. And I would say it was more that at Red Hat, you know, we had a lot of components of a strong team. So I tried to take those and then made a couple of changes. So I made a change in marketing and a couple others, but I would say, 70% 70% of the team was the same and I redirected them some and worked to build a team out of it, tried to augment where I think there were weaknesses. But, you know, especially coming in as a new leader to an industry that I wasn't a part of, to me, it felt like continuity, both in terms of the culture, but also experience. I mean, how was I going to know who a great product person was in software? I'd never been in software, but it made more sense to take the team and try to get the best out of them. And then observe where the gaps were and then just hire into those. And by the way, I'm still a big fan of that. I think that I know I was kind of forced into that or cut my teeth in that at Delta, but I do feel like oftentimes in a rush to say, I want perfect people, you know, you end up changing people and let's be honest. Well, I'd say for myself, I'm not that great at hire. And there's a lot of data that says a lot of hiring mistakes or a lot of hiring decisions or mistakes. I'd almost rather take what I know and work to optimize around that and especially hire three or four net new people and try to make sure those things work. Yeah. What were the things stepping into the CEO role from, I mean, you'd been a COO in a huge company prior to that. What was different becoming the CEO for you? Well, the thing you just really don't appreciate is that when there's no one behind the curtain, there is just an enormous amount more focus and attention on you and stress associated with that, yeah. right? So I thought, oh, I've had 80,000 people working for me at Delta. I ran a company through a bankruptcy, you know, kind of drove all the day-to-day. And so therefore, you know, I could be a CEO of Red Hat at the time was a much smaller company. Right. And you get there day one and you realize, okay, well, you know, if you walk in with a styrofoam cup, luckily I didn't do that. You know, people are like, oh, they don't care about the environment or 
all of these little things, everything you do, people are watching. I remember this great story. One time my wife calls me, she rarely calls me in meetings. And so there was, I was in with a group of people in a conference room. I said, excuse me a second. My wife normally doesn't call me. Let me just step out real quick. So I stepped out to call, came back, thought nothing about it. Five years later at a sales rewards club meeting, so this is where the top salespeople come in. One of the women there came up to my wife and said, I was just about to resign from Red Hat five years ago because I was pregnant and I wasn't sure Red Hat would work. And I was in a meeting with your husband and you called and he stepped out to take the call. And I thought, wow, if the CEO believes that it's important enough that family comes first, this is something I want to be a part of. She's wildly successful at Red Hat, but if I'd hit ignore, she wouldn't be there, right? So you don't realize those things. And so then the flip side, you know, after the Red Hat acquisition, I became president of IBM. So I'm number two in a massive company. That was much less stressful because there's somebody else behind the curtain or somebody else behind you. And when there is no one else there and the decisions that you make, you know, can affect thousands of people's lives, it's just different. I remember at the Red Hat Halloween party. The first version of Red Hat Linux came out on Halloween. So that's like our big holiday. Everybody brings their kids and we do trick-or-treating around the offices. And every year I would say it's a little bit stressful for me because I'm like, looking at all these kids running around, their parents work at Red Hat thinking, oh my God, all these people, you know, really rely on decisions that I'm making. And so it is different to be number two versus number one. And and the last thing I'll say, you read a lot of articles about these CEOs who become completely arrogant and just flame out because of hubris, they do stupid things. And a lot of those folks I now look back on and think, look, there are two ways that some people deal with stress. One is you let it get to you and you burn out. The other is you lock it away and just say, well, I'm so, I'm going to convince myself I am so right all the time. And I'm all knowing that you become that arrogant. I think a lot of people probably weren't that arrogant when they started, but it's a normal human reaction to just the level of stress you're under is either let it eat you up or to say, I'm going to surf above it. And so to get the balance right, to stay humble, and but not be eaten up by that stress is a really, really, really tough trick. And when I talk to other CEOs starting out, getting that middle model right, where you don't flame out because you just burn out, but you don't let hubris engulf you as a way to, as a coping mechanism for all the stress. It's tough. And you got to think really hard about that. Yeah. I always have felt like, you know, people go down that arrogance path too, because, you know, they're often surrounded by people who are afraid to tell them what they're really thinking, what they're worried about, you know, what's going on in their personal lives. And so they don't have the feedback, you know, that most people get, particularly when you have a boss, at least you're going to get feedback from your boss, (laughs) you know, but when you're a CEO, you know, most of the time the board chair, if the board chair is an external person or your external board members aren't there every day. So they aren't seeing you every day. And you just, you lose that ability to, to get feedback unless you work really hard at it. Yeah, you do. And that's, well, a couple of observations there. One is you're exactly right. And you have to push really hard on people say, no, I really want to know. I will see it as a favor to tell me this. Don't, you know, this is not going to hurt you. I got to know, because if you don't tell me how am I going to know? So you also have to beg for that. Also then, you know, frankly, think having a good, stable family life is helpful. So I always laugh and say, I have a wife, a daughter, a mother, and a mother-in-law, and none of them is ever going to let my ego get too far. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think, you know, having, being grounded with friends and family or something outside of work, and then really, really over, you know, emphasizing how 
important feedback is internally with your reports is critical. I used to do, and I made all my executives do this as they made most of them wanted to do it. Every several years, we all did 360s, me included. So I talked yeah. to the board, talked to my reports. And that way, that was anonymous. And so even if people, I think I did a good job of getting people to say, I really want feedback, but then you kind of got it kind of in a well-rounded package. And I think if if you don't do that, it's just hard to know because who is it when you heard the quip before? The last time you ever know if your jokes are funny is the day before you announce your CEO, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you were CEO there for a long time leading up to when IBM acquired Red Hat. What do you look back and say, these are like two or three things that I'm most proud of that we accomplished in, in my tenure? So without a doubt, number one, and when people tell me about, you know, kind of conference at Red Hat, I always start off saying we were 1,500 people when I joined. We were 15,000 when we sold to IBM. Mm. And just being to building and creating a culture and a team. And I think we did a really good job focusing on the culture. So we talked about it's got the open organization and we really, really focused on that. So building and scaling that organization and the careers that get made around that is the thing by far I'm most proud of that we were able to accomplish. So without a doubt, number one is just the people and the careers and scaling a culture. You know, Red Hat, not to get too far into the specifics of the company, is best known for open source software. And that means all the source code's free. So of course you say, well, how do you make money selling free software? How do you get people to actually pay you for free software is an interesting trick. And so... You know, when we sold to IBM, well, it still is the the largest software transaction in history. And, you know, I am proud of the fact that we took a disruptive model called open source and turned it into what is the right now the largest software transaction in history. VMware may, assuming that deal closes, will be bigger. But there's something about getting traditional IT company to say, to validate open source as a viable business model is something I am extremely proud of as well. And so those would be the biggest two. I mean, I think it's you know, great. We went from being small to being an S&P 500 component and et cetera, et cetera. Those were all great things, but it's really scaling the people and the team and those individuals and the senior team and two levels down. I'm still great friends with all those people. And then the mark we made validating open source as a model are the two that come to mind immediately. Yeah. Well, you really led the way. Red Hat led the way in the open source movement, and now it's mainstream. It's amazing to watch. Yeah, we used to talk about, you know, the first phase of Red Hat was convincing people that open source was a viable alternative to traditional software. And phase two was convincing people that it was the default choice. And certainly for infrastructure software, you know, if you look at any of the major new things happening in AI or ML or big data or DevOps and cloud, all of those things are open sourced, right? Yeah. So it really did go from, you know, convince people it was a viable alternative to literally being the default choice, at least for infrastructure. And I'm yeah. really proud of that because I do think we played a significant role in making that happen. Yeah. And you, you wrote a book about the open organization back, what, like five, seven years ago, right? Yeah. And that was... To be honest with you, I wish I had a do-over and maybe in some spare time I may do it because that book was basically a little bit of my articulation of going from Delta, which, you know, Delta is always on the list of most admired companies and all that. You know, you can, you know, it's easy to beat up airlines because we've all had our bags lost and flights canceled, but it is considered a well-run airline. 
And then I'd go to Red Hat. And I tell you, the first couple months at Red Hat, I thought, this place is chaos, right? They have no idea what good management practices. I've been brought in here to clean it up. And luckily, I didn't know enough about software to start cleaning it up. I was out meeting customers and trying to kind of get my bearings. And I realized over time is the Red Hat model isn't a, wasn't chaos at all. It was a different way to run an organization that is more optimized for innovation than for driving efficiency. And so the book was like my lesson learned going from Delta that I thought that's how you run a company. And Delta does run an excellent company to running Red Hat, which I would argue is an excellently run company as well. But they look night and day because of Delta you do not want someone innovating before, you know, on the safety procedures before your flight. You want those locked down and you want people to follow orders. At Red Hat, it is entirely about getting people to take the right smart risks, the right smart experiments to be able to innovate faster. And so the book was basically saying, wow, there are different ways to run depending on what your objective function is. And by the way, most companies come from that old world and they're trying to look like they're in the new world now, but they're not changing their ways of working appropriately to that. So you get this almost this impedance mismatch between leaders saying, I want my teams to be growthy and take risks and blah, 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 blah. And then they get these management systems with you know these performance cadences and you know measurement systems and you know and incentive compensation systems that are all about driving variance out. And so the one thing I'd still like to do is spend a little more time trying to more fully flesh out. I talked about the difference between Red Hat and Delta. I didn't yeah. create a more systemic, here are the 10 things to go think about if you are trying to make that transition. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be a version two of the book. We'll see. Second edition or a sequel. Let's go back to Delta. So you were at BCG, you were a partner, obviously doing very well there. What led you to make the jump out of consulting? Were you actively looking to move from consulting or was it just a situation where they came to you and made the proposal? Well, it was, you know, so I was very happy at BCG. I still, some of my best friends are BCG. My wife was way back when my office mate at BCG. So I have deep roots with the firm. And so Delta had approached me many times. I've always said no. And then 9-11 happened and I was down at Delta on 9-11 and literally at noon, the CEO at the time, Leo Mullen called me and said, I need you now to be my treasurer. If that job had just happened to be open, the prior person had left recently. And so basically said, Leo, I know nothing about being a treasurer. And he basically said, that's okay. Nobody in the right mind would loan us money now. I just need somebody who could be creative and help. And so I literally became treasurer of Delta at noon on 9-11. And you know, I think it was a couple things. One is it felt patriotic at the time. I did have a lot of feeling for the senior team at Delta because I'd worked with them for several years and had a real affinity there. Though also, my we were pregnant at the time with twins. And so my wife was due in, in October and this was September. And so the idea of coming into a place where I knew everyone well and they knew me well and felt like a company that really, really, really needed help at the time, but also then not having to travel as much kind of all came together. So I joined as treasurer. I did that for a couple of years. There was a CEO transition and the new CEO asked me to run the network, which is kind of where all the planes fly. And then a year later to be COO, which was, it had strategy and operations and network, had all that stuff under it. And basically 
still can't believe it. I laugh, I say often is now, I was 35 at the time when he said, we want to make you COO. Now, we knew we were hurling towards bankruptcy and would probably have to file in a few months. And say, I was so young and naive, I said, sure. Like, you know what I know now? It's like, would you ever take that job? But I didn't know. So I did. And it was, you know, obviously one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, you were there during a very difficult time, you know, as you say, hurdling toward bankruptcy. But at the same time, I mean, COO of Delta Airlines at age 35, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with that, even even if you are going to have to work through a bankruptcy, right? It was a phenomenal opportunity and a chance to go, you know, get to do that. And, you know, again, I thought I had a thesis of what we needed to do, which we put together the plan. Again, I come back to the thesis. If I didn't think I had a sense of what we needed to do, I'm not sure. Again, I would have done it, but I had a good sense. And we put together the plan and convinced the creditors committee this was the right plan and raised the debtor in possession loan and basically executed the plan. And luckily it worked. So yeah, it was a phenomenal opportunity. It was more fraught with risk than I was probably willing to admit to myself because yeah. it was extraordinary to, to get an opportunity to do that and an incredible learning experience for me. I remember there was an article, I can't remember what magazine it was in at the time, you know, that was just talking about how you really earned a reputation within the company. You were out talking to employees all the time and just had a reputation for kind of telling it straight, you know, while the company was going through a very difficult period and that you earned a lot of credibility with employees. Was that something that you feel like you're naturally good at, or was it something that you had to work to develop? I think there's a little bit, uh, well, I think I'm naturally, I'm a little bit of a geek, you know? And so I do love strategy and I like talking about it. And so part of that just comes naturally to me and I'm probably talk too much, but then, you know, just dumb luck right after the bankruptcy I was asked to go over to a break room at the Atlanta airport for the night shift mechanics. And, you know, it was kind of unplanned. And so I got there and I didn't have anybody who had scripted what I was going to say. And it's like right after we filed. Yeah. And so I got all these mechanics looking at me saying, well, what am I going to say? Yeah. Well, I just started going through and saying, well, let me tell you the plan. And which is what we've been telling, you know, the creditors committee and the debtor and possession lenders and all those other people. And, you know, it was complex, right? It was moving white bodies, you know, out of domestic to international and reconfiguring and downgaging and all this stuff. These mechanics are just sitting there for 30, 45 minutes. And when I finished, they started asking really intelligent questions around, well, can, you know, does that plane have the galley capacity to do that? And do we have the night number of white body gates if you're getting all these kind of questions rather than, well, how long before, you know, my medical benefits change or what's this, you know. It got around the airline very quickly by the next day really? that I'd been there doing that. And so then I just started doing that. And what I found is people really, really wanted to know what they were a part of. And it's one of the things I've talked about ever since and done at Red Hat. It's there's a sense among many executives that this need to know, like, I know the strategy. I'm going to go tell you what to do versus making sure everybody knows the strategy so they know what they're a part of. And that creates an intrinsic motivator that's huge. We went from last to first in on-time performance among the major carriers during the bankruptcy. And I'm totally convinced. It's not like we had some brilliant change in operations. I'm totally convinced that was because everybody knew the overall strategy of the company. And we told people being on time is how you can help us run a quality airline and get us out. And so people went above and beyond. And that's, I call it later on, like flipping the ambiguity higher pyramid. Most people say the strategy can be ambiguous as long as you crisply understand your job 
Yeah, I'd flip it around and say, you know, you want everybody to crisply understand the strategy. Let how they're doing their job be a little bit ambiguous so they have agency and control to kind of shape it a bit to do what they think is best because they're probably no better than you anyway. And so that was a lesson learned that it was so effective. I just kind of kept doing it. So whether I was good at it or I learned to do it because of that, there was a little bit of both in there. But I did that at Red Hat, you know, early on did a survey when I first got there and most employees said they didn't quite understand our strategy. Well, by the end of that year, people did. And we spent a lot of time on laying it out and communicating it, surveying that question every year. And I think it's just so important for people to be engaged to know kind of what direction we're all rowing and why. Yeah. The why really matters. You know, it's, you can't emphasize it enough. I mean, it really, you know, more than the what and the how explaining to people like, why are we doing this? If they can connect, connect what it means for them to why makes it a lot easier for them to accept things, even when it's maybe not personally great for them. Yeah. And you know, Delta was very simple. During the bankruptcy, we didn't have time to go, you know, hire a consultant and do a big, you know, purpose study. They said, we're not going to let this fail on our watch. Yeah. Right. Delta's an iconic company in the South. And, you know, a lot of the people there's parents work there and want their kids to work there. It's like, we're not going to let this thing fail. And that was enough. And, you know, obviously later on, you know, kind of built off of that. And it Red Hat, you know, open unlocks the world's potential, right? This whole idea of open and sharing and how important that is. And, you know, that it's incredible how strong intrinsic motivators like that are and how much people want to feel a part of something. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. So just thinking about your transition from Delta to Red Hat, you ultimately decided to leave Delta when they went in a different direction for CEO which I was describing before we started recording is like the ultimate bet in yourself to walk out on a COO job where you've got 80,000 people working for you. How did you think about that at the time? Was it an easy decision or hard decision? Well, I mean, look, I call it a choice might be a little strong. So the way Red Hat or the Delta was structured at the time, I was COO, but Almost all the major functions reported to me, I guess, other than finance. Yeah. And so when the new CEO came in, I mean, get along with him. I'd known him for years. He'd been another airline, Richard. He basically said, Jim, I can't have one direct report, right? I can't, you know, I got to have the major kind of functions. And so, you know, so there really wasn't a role for me. He was very gracious. Like, if you want to take any of the roles, pick, pick one, but I can't have. So that basically my role was going away. And so yeah. honestly, I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut, right? Mm-hmm. It was one of these... I hadn't, I was so deeply involved every day for uh, two years through that bankruptcy. So I really didn't kind of think about the other side. And then creditors committee went with someone else and there wasn't a role for me. And I mean, it took, I'd be a little, I kicked it a gut, spit spit a while. And so I think the big one for me on exit was three types of roles. You know, one was, a very senior executive at another company, but you know, big company, but not a CEO. The second was, you know, private equity companies calling to do turnarounds, right? And then trying to find a smaller company CEO role. And I just doing it another turnaround. We had to lay off so many people when I was at Delta, and it was painful. Yeah, and so I had zero desire to do turnaround things at all. So it was really looking at the other two. And you know, you do. I kind of get to the point. It's like I've been close to number one for a long time. I want to show that I can go do it. And so Red Hat took a chance on me given I was an airline person going into technology. Yeah, but it was a little bit of a bet of I thought I could go do something and Red Hat gave me the opportunity to do it. You know, it was a great situation to go into given 
what we talked about earlier in terms of just where they were in their evolution and, you know, the whole idea of open source and, you know, the movement that they were starting. Yeah, but I would say there, and this is one, I guess, lesson learned for me is a lot of people when I first did it said, wow, you were, had 85,000 people working for you, huge thing, you could go run big divisions, be, you know, next in line to be CEO of these big things. And, you know, Red Hat at the time was what, $400 million, $450 million in revenue, 1,500 people, wasn't that big. You know, finding something, as my wife said, after I talked to the CEO and I came in, she said, I haven't seen your eyes light up like that in a couple of years. Yeah. And that's why I kind of knew it was right. It's like, pick a role you can get passionate about and you're excited about rather than, you know, what looks like the right logical next step and then go make it successful. And if you're successful, new doors open. Yeah. And they did. Long run there. I want to come back and talk about the acquisition. When... IBM approached Red Hat about the acquisition, you know, how did you and the board kind of work through that process? Yeah, well, I mean, I can answer, I talk about the board, I can talk about me personally a bit in that. So I was not expecting it, call from Jenny, who I knew, we'd seen each other before, we'd done things before and said, hey, if you're in New York such and such a week, let's grab breakfast. And I said, great. So we got together and she slides term sheet across the table. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those ones where, you really have to tease two things out of a situation like that. One is like, what's best for you personally? And then kind of what's best for the company? Because, yeah. you know, Red Hat at the time was, still is very, very successful. Things were going well. You know, when your CEO's kind of taking the company, you know, 10X'd it in terms of, you know, right. revenue, market cap, et cetera, board's generally pretty happy with you and kind of lets you run and do your thing. So life was good, right? Everything's going along well here. And the idea of saying, oh, I'm not going to go sell and now work for another company. I have to say, personally, what <laughs> wasn't that appealing? Nothing against IBM. It was just, but when you looked at where Red Hat was, which is selling open source infrastructure software in a world where public clouds give you the infrastructure, open source infrastructure software for free to run on their public clouds, Red Hat's standalone strategy was yeah. starting to feel like it was going to get tougher, bluntly. And yeah. we'd always talk to us like, we need scale to be the company that can kind of abstract and run across these. But we're still, even at that size, at the time, $4 billion or whatever it was, you know, didn't feel like that was very big versus, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and these like massive, massive 10, 20x our size BMS. And then IBM comes along with a very nice premium for the shareholders, the scale to try to make that strategy work. It was the right thing to do for shareholders and Red Hat employees. Bluntly, it was tough for me to, took a while to mentally get there. But I think the board very quickly realized, you know, large premium, knowing what the likely difficulties, not that we couldn't have made it work, but the probability of success of our strategy being part of IBM was much higher than standalone. Mm-hmm. And so it was the right decision. And we, we kind of relatively quickly got to that, that we need to be part of a bigger company. So the board piece, and because the premium was so big, all was relatively easy. Frankly, the hard part was with being a lot of the senior team. You know, we've like built this thing yeah. and now all of a sudden it's going to be a part of something else. And yeah. at some point though, that's where you have to decide you got to do the right thing, yeah. right? You can't, especially as a senior executive, you cannot let your own personal you know, uh, circumstances or preferences keep you from doing the right thing. And so it was the right thing to do still, but it was, I'm from South Georgia. There's says easy, does hard. It's easy to say separate them, but it takes a while mentally to get your head there. 
as it became very clear, it was the right strategic outcome. You finally get yourself there and a great learning opportunity at IBM as well. And so, so far it's worked out well. Yeah. What did you do to two very different cultures, right? Like high growth, innovative company, as you've described it, you know, getting acquired by, you know, one of the biggest, oldest, most established tech companies in the world. How did you bring those, you know, help bring those two together? Well, you know, we did a couple things and this is where I started. We were talking a little bit about the book earlier and how right. I wish I had a little bit of do over. You know, we started to get a lot more nuanced around how we thought about culture and ways of working. And the reason I say that, and I used to, this is before the acquisition, gave a speech at Mobile World Congress a few years ago, where I basically talked about telcos go to see Google to learn about their how they operate. And I say, please don't do that because if the major telcos had Google's ways of working, I'd never be able to get a phone call completed again. Yeah. Flip side, if Google had a telco ways of working, right, we'd see no innovation happening there, right? And so the issue is most companies have some of both. And IBM is that great example of that, running the world's financial systems on mainframes. And there's a reason that hasn't moved to distributed architectures, right? These things have to stay up and they have to run in any condition all the time and never fail, right? That how you run to deliver that in the same way airlines run at multiple nines of reliability, you know, how you do that is a different set of ways of working that, than how you innovate. So we start off saying, at least with Red Hat, this is two cultures working together, not coming together, right? So we didn't try to change the Red Hat culture. Mm -hmm. We kind of very much said Red Hat needs to stay Red Hat and work with IBM. Now, when I transitioned to the president role at IBM, we spent a lot of time trying to say, well, we're in IBM, like in software group, how do we start to rethink given, yeah, I mean, IBM's created you know, mission critical software for a long time, but as we were driving forward into AI, ML, some of these other categories, how do we adopt some more of, a, I'll call it a faster paced kind of ways of learning kind of lessons from the Red Hat model, if you want to call it that but not say the Red Hat model's right, the IBM one's wrong or not, because there are a lot of things. I hate to even say innovation versus efficiency because it even becomes the kind of innovation. So if you're trying to build a quantum computer, you need you know, a whole set of work on you know, microwave you know, electronics to come together with the right refrigeration stuff two years from now to come together. And so that requires a level of planning. So I start talking, if you're trying to drive this future state versus seek a future state, hmm. how you build management systems for that are different, right? Yeah. And driving a future state could be, I'm going to drive variants out, but it could be building a quantum computer requires that kind of level of precise planning where a lot of software is much more about seek future state. How do I experiment? How do I try and work my way there? And so if you think about those as kind of two extremes, IBM had both, Red Hat had one. And so it's how do you take components of IBM and say, let's adopt more of this model, not because it's better or worse, it's just more optimized for a certain set of activities. And so I spent a lot of time teasing that out, getting crisper on that and working with IBM to adopt you know, more and more of that. And that was a lot of my role while I was there. Yeah. How was it for you? You know, you, you were CEO, you go to being ultimately president of a company that's many, 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 many times larger. You know, what was that, that shift back into being uh, arguably the number two person there, you yeah. know, similar to what you were at Delta? Yeah. Size wasn't, I didn't find to be a problem, right? You know, I was used to size from Delta and Red Hat had kind of grown a lot, but 
the I will say, I mean, to be blunt, it's really hard to go from being number one to number two. And I, I don't think I have a big ego need. It's not like I need to be in control. And matter of fact, I try really, really, really hard just to be a participant in meetings, you know, not perceived as like the leader because I can get the best results that way. And look, I have a great relationship with Arvid. He and I, you know, work really, really well together. But psychologically, it's really hard to not say, here's what I want to go do. This is what we're going to go drive. Right. And so I didn't think it would be hard to step back from being number one to number two. It's hard after you've been doing it for a lot of years. I will say the stress level is a lot lower. Back to my point earlier. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, it's there is someone else behind the curtain that ultimately is the, you know, the final arbiter. And so I would say I found it less stressful, but it's also just a very different role to work to execute. I was engaged in strategy, strategy reported to me and all that, but it's just a different role to be number two versus number one. So it was a huge shock when you left last year. What are you up to these days? Everybody wants to know what Jim Whitehurst is up to, you know, <laughs> post IBM. You know, no, I, um, well, one of the things I realized, you know, after I had kind of decided myself that I was going to leave IBM, but I had not left yet, told Arvin or left. Yes, yeah, but a lot of time intellectually saying, what do you want to do next? And what I've found, and this maybe this is me, maybe others feel this way. There's only so much intellectualization you can do with that. At mm. some point, you have to go live it. And so I finally decided, you know what? I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to experiment with a lot of things and see what I enjoy and see if I want to keep doing one of those more or jump back into being a CEO. So I'm doing several boards. I mentor a couple of of younger CEOs, and I love doing that and working with them and working to make them successful. I've gotten much more involved in several charities where I've been able to take on bigger roles. Ironically, when you're a sitting CEO on boards, nobody makes you do that much work. You show up at the meetings and spout off a little bit. Now that I'm not a sitting CEO, I'm like chairing committees and all these things, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I think is, yeah, which is great. Yeah. Whether it's companies or nonprofits. So I'm much more involved with my university and with some climate things, spending some more time with my wife and travel. And when I, I left last July, so I said this July, I'm going to step up and reflect back and say, is there one of these things I want to do full time or do I want to do the portfolio or other things? Um, which I also, I'm an advisor to Silver Lake, which I love. You know, I think CEOs, I think, are probably notoriously bad investors because you have to be an optimist. And, you know, you're the person out there kind of creating positive. And I think good investors are more skeptics. And so I've loved engaging with the folks there. And they're brilliant, but think yeah. differently. And so it's so wonderful to get to stretch a new set of muscles. And so one thing I've learned is, I'm 54 now, but I have still so much to learn and interesting people to meet. And it's lovely to have the privilege to be able to take the year and do that. Yeah, it is a a nice thing. I've had certainly a little bit of time off at points in my career. And, you know, it gives you a lot of time to reflect and to pursue some new hobbies and interests. And I look back on those as, you know, in one case in particular, it was stressful because I felt the pressure to find the next job. And at the same time, you know, I was getting to do things I was never going to get to do otherwise. And, you know, that's, that's a blessing, you know, that not everybody necessarily gets. And that's right. You know, that's, I um, joined BCG out of college and went there, went to business school, went back, literally noon on 9-11, you know, showed up half the morning as a bcg and in the afternoon as a Delta person. So yeah. never had a break there. And the Delta to Red Hat was relatively short period of time. So 
the first time I've had time off. And I've had so many people tell me that if you ever have a chance between you know, jobs to take some time, do it. And I never realized how nice it is to just be able to do that. I've read a dozen books so far this year. Actually, I think a little more than that. If I go back and look, I'm doing photography, you know, honestly, just spending more time talking to, you know, my kids and my mother and friends that I'd kind of fallen a little bit out of touch with. Those are things that it's hard to get that time back. And so I thought I would be more sitting on the beach where I find myself very, very busy, but engaging with, you know, interesting people. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're 54, you got a lot of runway left. If you want to dive back into something, or as you say, a portfolio of some things, what advice would you give people, you know, who are earlier in their career, you know, and trying to think about what they should do to kind of learn as much as possible and promote, help their careers as best they can? So first off, I think a lot of people try to act a part that they're in versus just being themselves. And, you know, if you're a good enough actor to really be able to act a part, you know, go to Hollywood, try to win an Oscar. I found that being able to say, I don't know, or I would really like to learn that, or I made this mistake is disarming for others. It actually builds your credibility with people because they're saying, okay, this person is comfortable enough with themselves to say they don't know, as well as I do think human beings interpret insincerity in very sinister ways. And if insincerity is like, I'm trying to act this part because I feel like I need to be this way, you know, people look at that and say, yeah, that doesn't seem authentic to me. They must have an agenda versus, hey, maybe they're just, you know, nervous or uncomfortable. So be yourself, you know, and related to that, you know, I ended up, you know, went from treasurer to running, you know, the network at Delta, ultimately CLO. And you say, well, how did the treasurer get to do that? Well, a lot of us is curious. So went to lunch with the person who ran maintenance and, you know, grabbed coffee with the person who ran, you know, flight ops. And, you know, and over time, I just was so curious with how things worked. I talked to enough people that it almost kind of became, oh yeah, yeah. Jim's kind of around. He kind of knows a lot of this stuff because he's been around all the various areas where actually I've only been in the company a few years, but I just spent a lot of time being curious and learning more and more and more. And I think that's, and, you know, the flip side is it wasn't like people didn't want to have coffee. You know, the guy ran maintenance was pretty saying, like, what does a treasure do? Now, why? What? You know, so those were good conversations to have. And I think that curiosity matters a lot. And the final thing I would say is just, again, back to we talked about it before is when you have people working for you, really, really thinking hard about, I call it creating the context for them to do their best work versus being so directive you'll get better people to work for you. They will do better, which means you'll do better. And that's probably the the single biggest lesson I learned. I go back to that night where I didn't know what I was going to say to mechanics at Delta. Yeah. And so I spouted off the corporate strategy. You know, that was probably the most impactful, you know, night in my career. And that, that kind of changed the way I thought about how to lead. And it's made a huge, huge difference. Sounds like it really did. You talked about reading books. Any books you want to recommend before we sign off? Oh, wow. Well, I could go on a lot. I want to be careful. I don't get too far into my own industry, but I would definitely say if you haven't read Flying Blind, that's a book that came out this year about Boeing. I thought that was just a phenomenal book, just talking about how a culture can kind of come apart with just a few years of leadership, kind of more focused on, you know, profits than on what's core about the company. You know, by the way, I should say on that, I think 
great companies are product led and that can be a product. What I mean, it's they're built around what am I delivering? And you have to have great sales to go with it. And you ultimately have a financial model. But as soon as you get away from that core of what's the product, that's a problem. And I think Flying Blind, which came out the year, was a great one. I thought Empire of Pain, again, that's a book about the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. Great book if you haven't had a chance to read it. That would be high on my list. That just I think it maybe came out late last year, but it's a relatively new book. Codebreaker, Walter Isaacson, if you haven't read that. I mean, talk about one of the most impactful areas. I would actually say this is how they tell me the world ends. That all came out, I want to say it was last year, but it's all about cyber and the implications for cyber going forward. Again, if you want to say CRISPR and crypto and cyber and security, probably three megatrends we should all know about. Yeah. I haven't read a good crypto book, but uh, I would throw those on there. And then I would say if I throw one more out there, how to sure. avoid climate disaster is the Bill Gates book. I'm spending much, much more of my time philanthropically and professionally around areas around climate. That's where I've gotten to the point of, you know, I've been fortunate and I have some time to give back and, you know, I want my grandkids to be able to breathe. So, yeah, that would be my quick list of relatively recent books, at least out in the last 18 months. Yeah, that's great. That's a great list. All right. Well, Jim, thank you. This is great. There's so much more we could go into, but I want to be a respectful of your time. You know, thanks for making time. It was really good to reconnect and catch up on things and hear what's going on with you. Well, this is great. Thanks so much for having me. It was it's an honor. I know you've had some great people on, so it's an honor that you asked. So I appreciate being here and I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Well, have a good rest of your day and I look forward to seeing you at some point soon if we're uh, in New York at some point. It was great to have Jim as a guest today. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.